week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. There is no such thing as an oral tradition. By its very definition, the rule of the gospel is written down. It's called a rule because God issued and inscribed a ruling shared publicly as an objective reference and standard for all to follow. The Gospel of Matthew itself demonstrates the importance of this mechanism by showing us what happens when religious and political authorities ignore this rule and instead speak on behalf of Jesus. Inevitably, they put words in his mouth that serve their agenda at his expense. Sound familiar? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 38 to 40. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 415 of the Bible as Literature podcast. When you hear the text and you follow the line of the text attentively, you begin to realize in the Gospel of Matthew that people keep telling Jesus he said things that he didn't say. <laughs> This is a recurring theme, Rich. It's unbelievable. And we come across just such another false accusation in this next small excerpt from chapter 27. There is a reason that Scripture is written and not passed around by word of mouth. (laughs) When he stood before the Sanhedrin, they came up They invented accusations against him. And then they searched to find witnesses to validate the accusations that they made up. There's this pattern of validating, substantiating, and taking seriously lies and falsehoods and hearsay. And the very people that make up the lie are the people that go out to seek documentary evidence of the lie. And there's an important lesson in this for everyone who goes on and on about an oral tradition of the gospel. There can't be an oral tradition of the gospel. It makes no sense. Within the gospel itself, when people start talking they start making stuff up and validating stuff that they made up and putting words in Jesus' mouth. That is what oral traditions are. 
You put words in other people's mouth and you make it up as you go. Now here in the storyline of Matthew, the things they keep ascribing to Jesus, either the actions or the words they put in his mouth, are always self-serving. And that's what we do when we make up words about God. The whole point of the rule of the gospel, to which Paul refers in Galatians and elsewhere, is that it's a rule that you have to submit to. It's written down. It's something that you bump up against. It works against you. That is the function of the Spirit, which Paul controls. I just want to take an opportunity to say this, Richard. It's one of the fundamentals of the study of Scripture, because people still want to insist on having their say in the name of God. It's still difficult for people to accept that the Bible their Lutheran relatives read is the same Bible they read in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. I know it's painful that you left the same Bible behind you to come and hear the same Bible in front of you, but that's the deal. There's no extra special sauce. There's just the Word of God, and it's written down. And whatever isn't written functions the same way as the words these clowns are trying to put in the mouth of Jesus. This emphasis on the written record is not just an interesting twist. We're talking here in this section of Matthew about a court transcript. People are making accusations. What did Jesus say? And at the end of the day, when you start playing with the concept of an oral tradition, you are messing with what God said. So do you want to play that game like these guys in the story? I don't think so. Looking at the accusations that are brought against Jesus, that he is not following Scripture, that he's not following the will of the Father, that he's claiming to be a king, that he claims that he's going to destroy the temple, whatever it is, the problem continuously confronts the reader that there is no reference point for an accusation unless it's in the written record, or at least in the public record. I mean, when they came to arrest Jesus, he said, what are you arresting me for? Everything I've done, I've done publicly. There's no revelation. There's no new data. The data's all out there, and you can only judge the data on its merits according to Scripture, which is the only canon, the only measuring stick for determining what is true and what isn't. Does it coincide with Scripture or does it not? Not does it coincide with the essence of Scripture, but does it coincide with the words of Scripture? When accusations that have no basis in anything are leveled against Jesus, like with Pontius Pilate, he doesn't say anything. There's no response. You said it. Indeed, he said it, but does it mean anything? Does it have any reference? Does it coincide with anything? Does it confirm anything? No, there's nothing to it. There's no substance. This is what Jesus is conveying in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is showing that there is no substance to these people's statements unless it corroborates Scripture, in which case it's just repeating what was already written. They want to call him a king. He spits out their wine. They want to call him son of God, which is another way of saying the king. And he keeps referring to himself as son of man. 
they want him to be something. It's very much like an occupying power hoping for an act of terror to justify a bombing raid. That's what the powerful want from Jesus. They want him to be the reflection of their power to justify their horrible, violent action. Violence understands violence. Power understands power. But violence is confounded. Tyranny is confused by a guy who refers to himself as just an ordinary Ben Adam. Are you kidding? So they want to make Jesus look like a Byzantine emperor. But he's just a shepherd. He's just a Ben Adam. He's just a son of Adam. He's not your Bar Abbas. He's not your champion. Not the way that you mean son of the father, which is someone to win a victory for you in the arena. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Once again, whatever you want Jesus to be, the written record of him portrays him publicly for all to hear. And you can't erase this because this is what Matthew wrote. The only way you can erase or undo what Matthew wrote is with an oral tradition, which results in a painting of Jesus dressed like a Byzantine emperor. Not a rabbi executed and put to death hanging naked on a tree. I know, you can explain, no, we're depicting him glorified, Father Mark. No, you're depicting him to look like Emperor Constantine because that's what you want. Nowhere in Scripture is he depicted like Emperor Constantine. He is, however, portrayed as one put to shame and crucified, here crucified with two robbers, one on the right and one on the left, like a common thief surrounded by common thieves. Yeah, the irony here is so strong that in verse 37, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then in the very next verse, there are two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. One can see how the king of the Jews crucified between thieves could reflect badly on the Jewish community. Nevertheless, this irony shows that Jesus, the king, reigns among thieves cursed on their tree, cursed on their cross, cursed, crucified in front of those who would mock him, naked, as you said, Father, exposed, humiliated. This emphasis on king does not mean that Jesus should therefore, as you said, Father, be depicted as Emperor Constantine. It shows that Emperor Constantine is the opposite of what Jesus is when Jesus is depicted as the king. Dressing up Jesus to look like Constantine is as absurd as dressing up Constantine to look like Jesus. I have yet to see a portrait of Constantine that shows him defeated 
humiliated, naked among thieves, so that he can more accurately depict Jesus. Nobody wants that of their king. No one can handle that about their king. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. This phrase is used in the Psalter. It appears, interestingly, also in Lamentations and in the book of Job. It's an important phrase because it means that the ones walking by see what is being portrayed and have a reaction of derision and shame and mocking. And they, in this case, start to shame Jesus and belittle him. But it pertains also to Paul's teaching in Romans that Israel will be held up as an example of sin for everyone to see and to look at. Remember that the function of Yahweh with respect to Elohim is to ensure that Israel is kept in check with respect to the other nations. Always in Scripture, you go from the universal to the specific. Elohim is universal in his victory. Yahweh is specific to Israel, to the people of Israel, so that in Elohim's victory, Israel would not be victorious. Or imagine that it could partake in Elohim's glory and victory over the nations, which, as I've said before, is exactly how paganism works. If Zeus conquers, then the people of Zeus conquer. Not so in Scripture. And here, Elohim is victorious in the crucifixion, but not Jesus. So to the extent that the people have named Jesus their king, and to the extent that Elohim has anointed Jesus as his Messiah, the Son of Man, the Ben-Adam, the Shepherd, has been anointed as the king by Elohim, which is different than the king that everybody keeps clamoring for. And now that shepherd is being humiliated for all to see. Romans is being fulfilled. Everyone sees the head of Israel being put down, which means Israel is being put down as an example of sin in the crucifixion. Everybody now sees the defeat of Israel. This is the stumbling block of the cross by which there is hope for the nations. Every time someone hurls an insult at Jesus in the story, Matthew is insulting Caesar. Always remember that Scripture is attacking Caesar when it attacks Jesus. If you understand the mechanism at work, if you always remember that the story was written by the Pharisees, then you understand the power of verse 39 and how the shaming of Israel is hope for the nations. In my study of Joel, one of the main functions of that book is to project Judah after the destruction of Jerusalem into the situation where there is nothing to hope in. Everything has been destroyed, yet God continues to demand that the priests teach 
the Lord's teaching. When there are no sacrifices that can be sacrificed because of a drought and the people are starving, and there is no temple to perform the cult in anymore, there is nothing. Rather than allow the people to feel sorry for themselves because they're starving, because the locusts have eaten everything, he demands that they sanctify a fast for him. The nations would say, who is this God that can't take care of these people? And this is depicted in Joel. These people who are passing by Jesus and saying, well, obviously this guy's a loser. Look at him. You can't get any more of a loser than that. And Joel begins with the situation of saying, okay, Israel, now you're all losers. What are you going to do about it? Okay, Jesus is now a loser. So, believer in Jesus, the one who supposedly trusts in Jesus, what do you do now? Because everyone can plainly see, with the data in front of them, that Jesus is powerless. He has nothing. So, Where do you put your trust? Will you still put your trust in this God, this Father of Jesus, who clearly couldn't keep his own son alive in the face of Zeus and the son of Zeus, Caesar? Or do you continue to trust in this God as the one who orchestrates everything, including Zeus and Caesar? This is the God that we have to decide. Are we going to trust him or are we not going to trust him? Because he can get ugly, but even when he's ugly, you still have to trust him. These people who would mock him no longer want to put their trust, and they make a good case. What can I say? So wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. A couple of things right out of the gate. Don't tell me, oh, yes, 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 Father Mark, Jesus did say it, and then turn to page 22 in the Gospel of John. Don't do it, please. Because we're not in the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. (laughs) In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus did not make this statement. You can't mash up the two texts. Don't do it. In Matthew, Jesus didn't say this. You cannot mix the two Gospels. You can't play that game. So Jesus never said that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's the first thing. Yet, it's clear in the progression of Matthew that Jesus marched on the temple. He marched on Jerusalem, wiped out Jerusalem, and moved right on through leading up to his trial. We also know that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. People around him said it, but Jesus never said it. That's not for him to say. He's not Elohim. He makes no claims. Now, I'm not interested in this weird theological debate about who Jesus was. That's not what Matthew is doing. It's not about identity. It's not about Christology. Sorry. It's about the addressee's lust for power. It's about the characters in the story lusting for security and glory. And I know you disagree. And that's why you're confused when people who say they love Jesus 
are clamoring for war, want to make sure that people on death row are all executed, and are spewing hate against people who disagree with them in the political arena. That confuses you. How can they be followers of Jesus, Father Mark, and speak this way? Because for them, Jesus is the Son of God the same way that Barabbas is the Son of the Father. He's their champion in the arena because that's what people want. He's their Byzantine emperor. He's their glorious, victorious orthodoxy or Catholicism or whatever it is they subscribe to. Their American evangelicalism, it's all the same function psychologically. It's their imperial victory. And if you look at a megachurch and you don't realize it's the same thing as Hagia Sophia, it's the same thing. It's imperial triumphalism on the backs of the poor. You don't know anything about anything. That is what Jesus destroys in the Gospel of Matthew. That's what they're afraid of, and that's what they want to put him on trial for. So in a way, he might as well have said it because he definitely is going to destroy all of it through his teaching. But that's not what they want. They want him to come down from the cross and ascend the throne. They want him to come down from the cross and climb on the chariot. They want him to come down from the cross and found a nonprofit for the betterment of the Torah and the advancement of the love of neighbor. As Che Guevara said, Jesus, Inc., that's what they want. What a waste that he had to be crucified. It would have been so great if he published books, as C.S. Lewis said. <laughs> Why couldn't he just live and publish books and establish institutions and libraries and schools? Think of how much Jesus could have accomplished if he lived longer. Come on. Let's call a spade a spade, for heaven's sake. This is what Caesar sees as successful, and this is what America sees as successful. And that's how so-called Christians can see that individual freedom is more important than taking care of the neighbor or taking care of the community. If I'm constantly taking care of the community and taking care of others, I might diminish. I might be unable to accomplish anything. I might not have enough money to do everything I want to do. So therefore, I come up with a theology that allows me to do what I want to do. And any theology that allows me to do whatever I want to do depends on individual liberty. It's very clear how this works. And these accusations that come against Jesus, they're precisely the accusations that the chief priests found. They found false witnesses who would finally agree back in chapter 26, verses 61 and 62, this Man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? And Jesus wouldn't say anything. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And he wouldn't answer. The only answer that Jesus would give was, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest says, okay, that's enough. We can get him crucified for that. We didn't even need these false witnesses. Yet we see in these crowds people who are repeating these exact lies. Somehow word got out. Could it have been during the time that they were 
working the crowd so that they would ask for Barabbas as opposed to Jesus? We can only speculate, and there's no point in speculating. In any case, these lies that the chief priests were finally able to find, evidently it wasn't as hard as we thought or as they thought, because there were whole crowds of people who were saying, this is the one who said he could destroy the temple in three days. Where is his power now? Where is his strength now? Where is his glory now? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, because they cannot conceive of a God that would allow his Son to not only suffer, but to be humiliated and dishonored among thieves with the curse of the cross. This most terrible of punishments from both the Gentiles and the Jews. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.